This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, uh, we are very delighted to be joined by Dr. Dan Donahoe. He's a pediatric neurosurgery, uh, neurosurgeon attending at Children's National Hospital in D.C., also at George Washington University. And interestingly, another graduate of USC, one of our favorite programs in uh, Dr. Wang's own home residency. So great to have you on the podcast. Dr. Donahoe here today to discuss a very hot topic in the world at large, as well as within medicine and neurosurgery, that being artificial intelligence and machine learning in medicine and neurosurgery. Um, Dr. Donahoe actually has a, a blog on this topic called Control-Alt-Operate, which we'll link to and I'm sure we'll talk about today. Dr. Donahoe, welcome to the show. Very pleasure. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's great to meet both of you virtually. Uh, I've been a long-time listener and first-time caller, so I'm excited to see what we can get up to today. Oh, well, that, that's great. That's very kind of you to say. Uh, we're excited to have you on the show. Um, as you say, meeting virtually, so for us and also for all of our listeners, uh, take a moment and introduce yourself. Tell us about your background. Thanks. So I'm uh, currently a pediatric neurosurgeon at uh, GWN Children's, as you mentioned, uh, and trained at uh, Dr. Wang's uh, home program as well at uh, the University of Southern California. Um, I did my pediatric neurosurgery fellowship at Texas Children's Hospital and trained with Ed Laws at the Brigham and Pituitary Surgery as an enfolded fellow during my residency. Uh, I originally actually grew up in Northern California, uh, went to college and medical school on the East Coast. And uh, if you want to know what I think about college, I did a Kevin MD podcast on uh, what uh, what major you should choose as an undergrad pre-med. Uh, so uh, I'm uh, excited to talk about any and all of these topics and uh, let's get going. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we'll, we'll link to that episode as well so our listeners can find you on the Kevin MD podcast. So I, I guess the million dollar question would be, you know, with, with this whole career path, as you described, we all know how hard we work in neurosurgery, how many hours a day it takes for medical school, residency, fellowship, and, all, and, and now your attending career. How did you get into this other sphere of artificial intelligence? Like what, what first drew you down that path and, and, you know, perked your interest enough that you actually would take the time out of your day to learn about this whole sphere of activity as well? So, I got into uh, thinking about surgery from a computational perspective through the lens of surgical simulation. Uh, we were very fortunate at, at USC to have an excellent uh, ability to uh, perform cadaveric dissections, and uh, we acquired the ability to perfuse those cadavers. So we developed a training model to uh, train surgeons to manage, in, in this particular model, a variety of vascular injuries. Uh, particularly uh, carotid injuries, which can be encountered during endoscopic and nasal approaches, but also uh, venous sinus injuries and, and other models we've published. And I had the, the great privilege of taking that model on the road with uh, Dr. Gabby Zada, who's a, a longtime mentor and uh, of mine and someone I looked up to greatly in the field. Um, we took that on the road to uh, NASBS courses, uh, as well as other courses, other institutions uh, at other places across the country. Uh, and I know that many others are carrying on that work as well, even today. Um, I really enjoyed uh, both teaching and learning uh, from uh, trainees and master surgeons and uh, thinking about their techniques and feedback that they had about this particular simulation model. Uh, but 
I realized that we had a unique opportunity there uh, if I would only just hit record on the camera button and save the video. And, and that decision was probably the turning point for me in my career uh, because when I did that, I developed a large library of surgeons all performing the same maneuvers, the same procedure, but with different outcomes. Uh, we measured blood loss, we measured task success, we uh, could grade folks as to their performance, and that created a labeled data set that we could exploit for machine learning applications years later. Uh, and we've actually subsequently published that data set. You could download it, including the uh, labels of the surgical instruments and the outcome labels for each of the videos. Um, and that's, uh, as far as I know, it's one of the only uh, performance tasks in neurosurgery uh, that actually has a video data set that's published. So I would encourage uh, listeners to consider using that if you're uh, validating machine learning models or want to train uh, supervised learning models. We can talk more about those things later. Um, once I realized that I'd actually created a data set of, of surgeons performing tasks on video of you know, hundreds of uh, these uh, different attempts, uh, that was in about 2016, uh, 2017, and uh, machine learning uh, had been, has been around for actually a very long time, uh, and video methods were uh, becoming uh, more and more feasible, uh, compute was becoming more and more available, algorithms were getting better. Uh, and uh, to be honest, more uh, user-friendly as well, uh, both from the uh, training and even from the deployment standpoint. So uh, it was a lot of, uh, you know, right place, right time, thinking about how we assess surgeons. Uh, that was a lot of, you know, what I, what I thought about, how we train people, how we know that someone can or can't do something. Um, and, and that's what led me to think about uh, automated methods for surgeon performance assessment because uh, we can't scale our mentors, right? There's, uh, unfortunately, there's only one Steve Giannata, there's only one Ed Laws, there's only one Gab Zada, there's only one Mike Wang, and you can only be in one place at one time. So how can we provide those insights from our heroes, from our mentors to a much larger audience, uh, potentially you know, regionally within our field, nationally, or even internationally, uh, and if we can develop a framework for doing that, develop an architecture and platform uh, for providing surgeon feedback at scale, uh, that was sort of the first insight that I had of this could be really an impactful thing. Uh, and I've, I've pursued that uh, to various extents over really the last uh, seven or eight years. Uh, and I have uh, NIH funding to uh, carry out that work now. Uh, and that, that all goes back to uh, being curious about surgery, being excited about surgery, having really phenomenal mentors and teachers, people that I wanted to emulate, and the realization that what greater way to pay respect to your mentors and to honor them by potentially passing along their teachings to future surgeons by the droves, tens, hundreds, thousands of future surgeons. Dan, you know, it's really fantastic to have you on the podcast. I actually uh, reviewed your paper for our Neurosurgical Focus issue, uh, volume 52, issue four, which was on big data and, um, you know, surgical decision-making. And it's such a huge field, so important. And I was really fascinated by what you were able to accomplish to do a very, very uh, thorough analysis of unstructured data sets, right? And, and you called it like code-free or something, right? Um, it, can, you, can you go a little bit deeper into the weeds? Because I don't want to get too wonky, but what you're doing is really 
Uh, it's it's difficult. It's not straightforward, uh, but it's incredibly impactful. Yeah. So I think to to invite people into this world, I think the the thing that surgeons need to know about machine learning, about uh, computer vision, is you can make a huge contribution to this field, and you can do that by being uh, a curious person about what you're doing in the operating room by recording your video, by understanding what use cases are impactful, and the tools will follow. Um, so that that paper that we're talking about used uh, code-free machine learning, used uh, a uh, Google platform uh, to perform the variety of uh, machine learning tasks that we were interested in, both object detection and training models for even for outcome prediction now is possible. Uh, and that can be done through uh, a series of services that are on many platforms now, not just on uh, GCP on Google Cloud Platform, but on, on AWS and on many other smaller vendors as well. Um, so this is really becoming a, a commodity, this, this concept of bringing videos, bringing data, uh, bringing a clinical question and, and having it answered. Um, and I think the the thing that that I that I want to impress upon people is, you know, my my view of what's needed uh, now is a a platform and architecture that can exploit the interest and the knowledge of surgeons with the data that we uh, record and, and capture and uh, can exploit for the benefit of our patients and of our field. You know, Dr. Donahoe, I think that that is such a critical point, and um, it, it's something I've often discussed with uh, some of my friends here in residency and and with researchers in general uh, at other programs, how whether or not we as the surgeons are capable of doing a specific analysis or running a specific statistical test ourselves, or in this case, writing the code to construct these models ourselves, we are, as you say, somewhat the commodity. We know the questions to ask and the answers to look for and the way to structure the experiment, even if we, even if each one of us can't write the code ourselves. So particularly, you know, the events of the past few months with these newer and newer updates to the chat GPT model coming out, which I'm sure we're going to talk about chat GPT today. It seems that increasingly someone like us in our field where we have our technical discipline, but maybe we can't all write the code, we are increasingly empowered to engage with these tools and have access to these tools, regardless of if we can write the code, regardless of if we can do the stats, we still know which questions to ask. So when I, in the past, I've done a little bit of work on a machine learning project, I was by no means writing the code myself. I had a colleague to do that, but I, I kind of dipped my toes into the water in thinking about what kind of model would you use for this question? What kind of test would you use for that question? So perhaps for our listeners who want to get involved and want to get engaged in this area of activity, maybe you could lay out for us kind of an overview on different kinds of machine learning models, different kinds of AI models, what exactly they mean. And like the, all these different terms, you hear about artificial intelligence, but then is it artificial general intelligence or machine learning and all the different sub, you know, neural network, random forest. So maybe you could talk a bit about each different kind of model in broad strokes and when each one is best used. What kind of problems would you use that for? Yeah, I think uh, I, I think we can do that. Um, I, it'll take me probably about 
170 hours of coursework uh, <laughs> to, to go over everything. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I think we can we can lay it out oh, in about true. in about four or five minutes. So, um, I, I think the the way to the way to think about uh, machine learning uh, as a field for clinicians, uh, in my view, is really to come back to uh, a couple of questions, which is what is the data, what is the, what is the data type, uh, and what is the task that you you would like the model to do, um, and the the broad uh, sort of classification of machine learning models um, can include uh, some you know various uh, branch points depending on uh, what you're thinking about. So I think about a lot of uh, video data, which is probably not the most common. Uh, use case for uh, machine learning models in medicine writ large. Um, there are models that focus on uh, text data through a field called natural language processing, uh, which has, again, been around for actually uh, quite a long time. Um, and then there are models that uh, focus on uh, standard data sets similar to what you might see many, many uh, different potential uh, inputs into that model for each uh, patient. You may have many different variables and you're looking for uh, complex uh, and nonlinear relationships between those variables. Um, the, the first model that I think is uh, nearest and dearest to my heart uh, is always logistic regression. Um, anytime you're trying to classify a binary outcome, uh, I think that's always where I would start. Uh, and, and that is, uh, you know, a type of uh, supervised machine learning model, um, you know, so I, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't ever look past, don't sleep on, on logistic regression, it'll get you a lot of places in life. Um, <laughs> I think the, uh, there's another sort of, uh, besides the, the data source, um, there, there's a, a sort of a large uh, differentiation in the field, and, and this is sort of pertinent um, to supervised and unsupervised models. Um, Supervised models are, are models that function uh, on labeled data. Um, and that means that you're going to provide both uh, the, uh, the potential uh, input values and you're going to provide some kind of typically a classification label or a value um, that uh, you're essentially telling the model, if you could tell me this value for this input, that would be a correct prediction, right? So that could be uh, in vision, right? That could be uh, there is a kerosene in this frame, right? There is a drill in this frame. Um, you know, that could be in, uh, you know, natural language processing, right? Like here's, uh, uh, you know, a series of, uh, of text objects. And what I would want you to be able to output is this type of text. Um, there's also unsupervised uh, learning models, which uh, typically function without that uh, relationship where they're just fed uh, input data without labels, and the models learn uh, by identifying uh, features and, and aspects of uh, patterns within the particular data stream uh, to uh, perform uh, classifications or uh, other uh, regression prediction tasks um, against that data. So those are those are some of the uh, relevant distinctions. There are you know many many more. The the classic things you know like you mentioned, we can go through the the soup of uh, you know, random forests, um, you know, uh, many, you know, there's just so, so many other, uh, you know, different types of uh, prediction models. Um, and it seems in some ways like new model architectures are being generated every day. Um, the other model that I think people probably should understand a little bit because it's the, 
the T and GPT is uh, transformers. Um, and, and these are a type of neural network. Um, so neural networks are uh, a type of machine learning model. Uh, neural networks are at a very high level of abstraction, loosely patterned on uh, the neurons that we're all familiar with in the sense that um, the, uh, there are a series of nodes within the network, uh, some of which are present at either end, uh, meaning the input and output nodes, and there may be some number of nodes uh, within the network that are called hidden, um, meaning that they're not where the data is input or where the prediction uh, you know, regression or classification is output. Um, there may be a variety of different schema and, and, and relationships between uh, those nodes, but essentially uh, they'll uh, perform a mathematical function on the input and output will then be uh, processed through whatever architecture you have. And then uh, there will be a, a learning step. And again, this is a, a very high level of abstraction where in a supervised uh, method, again, uh, you'll have uh, for a training uh, data set, right, you'll have the quote unquote correct prediction and the model will compare its prediction uh, using uh, a loss function uh, to see how close it got, for example, to the correct prediction and then will update itself through a process called backpropagation um, where the weights and biases, the parameters, you might hear that word uh, tossed around, um, of the uh, neurons of the model uh, will be updated to try to get a better score on the next uh, time it sees uh, the next set of training data. Um, so those are uh, neural networks. Um, transformers are a particular uh, neural network architecture that have a property uh, called attention. Um, and at a high level, uh, attention um, allows the network to uh, identify the most salient uh, properties of a either uh, set of inputs um, and essentially to focus uh, and, and weight those areas. Uh, and I think a lot about images, but the uh, same property obviously works well for text um, to understand the relationship between, for example, words in a text string and understand which words are highly linked together and often seen together. Um, and uh, it allows that network to then uh, make more uh, uh, accurate uh, predictions in a, in a text task, for example, of a next word task, right? And that's something we see that GPT does a lot, right? It generates text. You give it some input text and it's just uh, doing a, you know, giving you a probabilistic uh, representation of what it thinks the next text, text should be based on how it was trained. Um, and what, what it thinks the relationships between language uh, could be. So um, those are some of the key properties of these networks, and they can be quite powerful. Um, I think the thing that's important about uh, particularly uh, GPTs um, and other uh, text generation models is just to remember that these are probabilistic representations of models that had a given training data set. The model doesn't may behave as though it knows or understands, but it doesn't necessarily have any definite knowledge or understanding. Um, it can produce text that's extremely similar to what an expert human might produce under certain circumstances. It also may be very difficult to understand and predict what those circumstances might be unless you can uh, 
pass a large amount of uh, inputs into that model that are very important in your domain. For example, a large amount of neurosurgical text into GPT um, and seeing how it does, you may find cases that are not well represented in that model's training set without knowing it. Um, and those are the things that I think are really difficult um, about uh, a lot of the things that you'll hear about the, the accuracy of, uh, you know, chat GPT can pass the uh, neurosurgery uh, written boards, the SANS questions, right? And that that is certainly uh, a property that it may have. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that tells you that if you give it a different set of questions, it would necessarily perform uh, equivalently. Or if you ask it uh, different questions about those same topics, it would have that same level of knowledge as a human learner would have. Those are all testable hypotheses, and I, I look forward to seeing more work in this area. Um, so I think it's important to understand these concepts of uh, having uh, a little bit of uh, questioning of the, of the models and their performance, and particularly when the training data set is not uh, fully understood and, uh, or sorry, fully represented to the user, um, and when the model architecture is not fully represented to the user um, and the model is not open source, uh, some of these things can become uh, increasingly difficult. Well, Dan, I, I could geek out with you all day long. And you've given us a great tour of that. And, um, you know, it's interesting in my MBA, we're learning all about this and we're doing a lot of uh, the, the modeling you're talking about, whether it be neural network or decision tree analysis or, uh, you know, least k-means and all that. And it's very exciting. You're right to get people excited about this. It is, um, it is very powerful. And I've actually started to do some math optimization work uh, for my clinic and surgical practice. It's very exciting. Uh, using linear algebra to try to figure out how to be most efficient um, with our, our clinical practice. But I do want to bring up something uh, with a slight change of tone, which is um, I, I was at a faculty meeting not too long ago, and I feel like neurosurgeons are woefully blind. And I'm going to say that as much as I love neurosurgeons, because a bunch of the faculty who I would say probably can, you could consider them to be intelligent, right? They said things like, well, Bedside manners, what matters, or the human touch, so we win. And I said, listen, I don't think you're right. I think that we're going to be worse at these quote-unquote emotive or, or feel aspects of care. And yesterday in JAMA Internal Medicine, did you see this article about yeah. they did a comparison? Yeah. yeah so, they, so just for the listeners, they compared um, in a public forum, and they blinded the responses to patients' questions about this or that or the other. And then they had a panel of physicians score the quality of the response to the patient's question. And universally, the chatbot did better on not only quality, but also empathy. And this is where I worry that doctors think that they have some kind of magic soul that is like, and then we, maybe we do, right? That we touch people. But now that we move to Zoom, like you definitely can't connect on Zoom. Um, I worry about this. Now, surgeons, we don't have to worry yet, but tell me your opinion on this, because I think that 90% of surgeons are going to issue that comment, which I'm going to vehemently push back on, and this paper shows it's actually Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that the question, I agree with you, I think it's fundamentally the wrong question. I think anytime uh, we see these humans versus AI, um, to be perfectly honest, it's fundamentally not interesting to me, um, because I don't think that that's how... Um, systems are deployed in medicine, and I don't think that's how human beings work. I think the question is always human beings plus 
quote unquote AI, right? Human beings plus automated systems. Um, and and how how good can we be? And it's no surprise that if you tell a, a GPT to be empathetic, it's gonna be empathetic, um, at least in the first couple of responses, almost without fail. Why wouldn't it be? It has seen many, many thousands and millions of examples of empathy in its training data set. And it's been trained by human, uh, you know, essentially trainers in its reinforcement learning with human feedback paradigm um, to know what that is. Uh, surgeons are tired, they're grumpy, they're uninterested, all of the things that other humans are. And, and maybe we're uh, actually a little more vulnerable to some of our uh, excesses. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the fundamentally interesting question for me is how uh, do we combine with this new tool to serve our patients better? Uh, and how do we keep that service to patients as our North Star? And I think there was an interesting, uh, there's an interesting article looking at uh, interpretation of chest radiographs. Um, and the question was, how do we actually team up the radiologist with the AI, right? We know the AI certain performance characteristics, at least among this uh, particular uh, training test validation paradigm. Um, we know that humans have some performance characteristics so what do we do with that, right? Who sees the x-ray first? Um, and what are the conditions under which humans get, you know, go to an AI to get help? What are the conditions under which an AI would go to get help from humans? So I think those are the things that really uh, take domain expertise. Those are the things that we are expert in, right? How, how exactly do you team up with uh, GPT in your clinic to deliver better care for your patients? Um, that's where our unique understanding as, as humans and as uh, surgeons is actually quite important. But this question of, oh, I can do this better than AI, um, the more narrowly you do and well you, you can specify that task, the less, frankly, the less likely that that's going to be true in the, in the longer run. Um, if not for any other reason, then every time you do something these days, you're likely generating training data for the next generation of the model, and it's going to learn what you've done. Um, so uh, I, I think that I want to, I would encourage uh, our colleagues to focus on uh, carefully and thoughtfully integrating automated systems into medicine and really taking the lead in understanding the parameters under which those systems function and developing new and creative ways to better serve our patients. Well said, Dr. Donahoe. And, and you know, as, as we bring this conversation to a close, I think it, we would be remiss if we didn't address um, what you could call the apocalypse of it all, the, the terminator of it all. And, you know, no, none of us in neurosurgery or in the field of medicine really have a chance to influence the safety parameters of artificial intelligence and the broad scale application of this in the world, the genie is out of the bottle. And so, um, you know, I'll leave it to Elon Musk to go meet with senators and talk about trying to put restrictions and safety measures on these things. But where we might uh, intersect with this more in the field of applications in the real world is, as, as you were just discussing, tra training sets and data sets. And I know that um, there has been some talk about the quote unquote publicly available data sets that the chat GPT was used to train on. And now they're charging fees to use that, even though they used other people's content online to train the model. And so I wonder if as 
we are all increasingly generating data, as you say, in our EMR, in our practice, whether it be imaging or text, as we're all generating the, these data, which may one day be used to train a machine, which could go on to make a profit for some company that designed the computer-based machine, how can we protect ourselves? How can we either as patients or as physicians and producers of data that might go on to train a machine, how can we protect that data and protect the value that we inherently generate uh, when we record that data and send it off into the world? Yeah, I think I think you've touched on a lot of uh, a lot of really important questions. Um, you know, regarding the the AI apocalypse, um, I think the uh, I, I think those those fears uh, are largely. I'm gonna I'll, I'll put my foot in my mouth here. I think those fears uh, are are largely uh, both overblown or generated by folks who have anti-competitive interests in regulation, as regulation mm-hmm. uh, is often used for, right? Um, uh, to your specific question about how do we sort of protect our content, um, I think that we protect our content by becoming increasingly skilled. I think that if you view your job as uh, generating content that could be used to train an AI, that yeah, at some point uh, you you may not have a job. Um, but I think that there are going to be so many more opportunities generated by any disruptive technology than there are losses to the economy and losses to jobs. Um, and that's, that's an important factor to consider regarding the use of, uh, of patient data and, and of our own data. Um, I think that we have to view uh, our patients and our, uh, our field and our uh, commitment to, to human health, to the Hippocratic oath that many of us took as really our, our North Star is our highest calling. And quite frankly, if these systems are uh, sensitive and respectful and following a managed rights schema um, and behaving ethically, and they're improving human health, I think that's something that we need to lead. And I think that's something that we need to govern. And I think that's something we need to be a part of um, rather than trying to uh, carve out uh, exceptions to, to training data sets in health. I think the bigger risk is we're going to see profound increases in certain areas of uh, productivity, um, certain tasks and certain error patterns that humans make when they perform those tasks are going to be much less likely. Uh, And if we don't harness the ability of these automated systems to improve the care that we provide in medicine because of our uh, sort of inability to manage the uh, rights and the value of uh, commercialization of our, of our digital assets, I think that's ultimately going to harm our patients in the long run. And that's, that's really what I think about. Um, and I think we need to do this in a very careful way, in a thoughtful way that you know, does hold our patients uh, as the, the highest value and protects their privacy and uh, protects their sort of views. And, um, but, but ultimately, I think uh, we need to use this new technology to improve human health. Well, uh, a great way for anyone who is a novice in this field to start learning about these tools and these computerized systems would be Dr. Donahoe's blog, Control-Alt-Operate. It's on Substack. It's surgery.substack.com. We'll link to that in the show notes for this episode. Um, I've been you know, reading up on this and uh, both in preparation for this episode, but also just in general trying to educate myself 
And this was obviously a, you know, drinking from the fire hose, as we always do in neurosurgery. But Dr. Donahoe, thank you for your time coming on and giving us and our listeners kind of a whirlwind tour through the world of AI as it pertains to medicine. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. You know, it's really been a pleasure and, uh, and a great conversation. I think uh, one of the things that I think a lot about is trying to find ways to have more of these types of conversations with interested folks in our field. Um, so we're uh, considering uh, forums and venues where we may even be able to have uh, some structured meetings and conversations around the topic of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and neurosurgery. And uh, we look forward to presenting that to our uh, neurosurgery community uh, when that's a little bit uh, more fully developed, but stay tuned on that count. Phenomenal. Thank you, sir. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.